This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. So uh, just a quick note here at the top of the show before we get to the regular part of the episode. Um, There was a technical glitch that um, I forgot to plug in the microphones for the first roughly uh, 24 minutes of this podcast. And uh, I don't uh, want to offend anybody. The conversation I feel is one of our better ones that we've had on the podcast so far. Uh, unfortunately, um, <laughs> Dana sounds a little distant and, uh, I sound very echoey and kind of tinny. So if you want to skip ahead in that, in the conversation, you can pick up around the 24 minute mark. Um, but, uh, until that point, it's going to sound a little, um, weird because it was only picked up by our computer mic. So, uh, sorry and apologies. Uh, we'll try and do better next week. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we're discussing Steven Spielberg's classic E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So, what is your relationship to this film, Dad? It's a film I'd never seen until I watched it preparing for this actual uh, podcast. So, uh, I know that this is a point of consternation, uh, because I remember seeing this film as a re-release at theaters, and only by doing the research did I find exactly when it was, so about 2002, when I, which would fit, about when I was 12. Um, I did not remember a ton about this, but I can will swear up and down that you and mom took all of us to see this. Now, I know you don't agree, but that's just simply my contention, so... No, it's not accurate, because I've never seen this film. I am not your mother who forgets what she watched last week. I remember, and none of this was um, at all uh, anything that jogged my memory, other than the few scenes I've seen, like the bike across the moon, which is iconic and has been shown in multiples. I've never seen the film. All right. Uh, For background on the movie, we'll just give you the quick rundown. Uh, After a gentle alien becomes stranded on Earth, the being is discovered and befriended by a young boy named Elliot, played by Henry Thomas. Bringing the extraterrestrial into a suburban California home, Elliot introduces E.T., as the alien is dubbed, to his brother and his little sister, Gertie, played by a very young Drew Barrymore. And the children decide to keep its existence a secret. Soon, however, E.T. falls ill, resulting in government intervention in a dire situation for both Elliot and the alien. Uh, This film was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Original Screenplay, and Film Editing. It did win for Best Sound, Sound Effects, Visual Effects, and an Original Score by John Williams. Uh, It, in, uh, in American Institute, or Film Institute polls, the the film has been voted the 24th greatest film of all time, the 44th most heart-pounding, and the 6th most inspiring. Other AFI polls have rated it as the 14th greatest music score and then as the 3rd greatest science fiction film of all time. The Line E.T. Phone Home was ranked 15th on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes list and 48th on Premiere's Top Movie Quote list. So, uh, the question we start off every podcast with anymore. What is this movie about? Uh, the innocence of childhood facing the uh, 
uh, uncertainty of the future or of a certain situation. It's it's about faith. That's an interesting um, perspective on it. It's not originally the same one that I came to, but the longer I watched this film, um, and I was probably saving this for a later time, but this is a good uh, point to pull it out because uh, you mentioned it, how um, messianic this this film seems to be, you know, yes. down to almost the, the notes and the beats because, um, you know, as, as I put before every podcast, this is going to be filled with spoilers. So, I mean, this is uh, a 20 or 38-year-old film, so it's not like I can really ruin it for everybody. Um, but if you haven't watched it, go look on Netflix. But E.T. basically dies, is resurrected through faith. Um, he has his own um, great commission. I'm right here. At the end of the movie, um, he has this whole, you know, only certain people believing in him, but he has the, like, ability to do miracles by healing the flowers and healing Elliot and doing all of these other things. And so tying that angle to the faith of a, a boy is an interesting perspective. I guess I hadn't necessarily considered. Well, I came to the conclusion this was very uh, uh, Christ-like in the whole premise of it, which is, again, and I, point, or, and I thought about the fact, death and resurrection you know, I mean, it, it, it like spoke to you instead of the whole thought of Christ itself. It's um, some other life form that's beyond our knowledge and control. It's belief in something of a greater good of a greater world than ours. It's a, a different connection, certainly by making it um an alien being where the belief in we're not alone in the universe. And I, I know that's been a point of consternation, um, especially among um, uh, religious um, people for a long time or religious groups, if you will. Um, but I, I, I took out of it more of the friendship angle. I think that's the major theme that this played on for me. Um I know that in reading some of the comments afterwards, some of the reviews, uh, some of the discussion uh, posts uh, this movie, that a lot of this is autobiographical of uh, Spielberg himself um, being uh, a child of divorce and his parents, you know, in the movie famously, Elliot's going through um, a situation where his parents are separated. His dad is notably, quote unquote, in Mexico. Um, which is mentioned, I think, at least three or four times. And he, uh, Spielberg says he felt somewhat alienated, um, which is, you know, obviously a, a choice word, not meant to be a, a pun or anything, but um, just tying in how alone he felt by comparison. And that um, this is... Um, faith in something that's larger. So I guess that's tying in with yours. But ultimately, um, in the character of Elliot, especially early on, uh, he doesn't fit in with his brother. Uh, he gets uh, picked on basically by his entire family in some capacity. You're, you're meant to feel uh, a sense of sympathy for him early on. Um, he's somewhat bullied and lonely and misunderstood. And 
he eventually befriends this gentle, magical alien um, who really is his only friend. Well, Elliot's also the middle child, which also has certain poignancy and relevancy. Sure, I I think you could probably do a lot of psychology studies on that particular aspect. So, and he's reaching out and, and trying, and he's willing to sacrifice his own fear in order to obtain a relationship that is not uh, or in the norm of humanity. I, I think there is something to be said about breaking through the barriers of the other uh, for this movie that, um, you know, more than other movies that um, are, I mean, this is essentially in some ways a kid's movie. Um, you're still teaching good themes by, um, that you're developing a meaningful relationship, a meaningful friendship, something that's special, that you have a connection of um, feeling and emotion. I mean, the the comment or the, the eventual quote uh, where Elliot feels um, E.T.'s feelings, um, and that's how it's communicated to the rest of the world, um, being um, going forward, uh, and of course I've lost my train of thought now, but um, the, uh, um, <laughs> I'm completely in space now. Okay. Yeah. Well, that happens. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, all right. So I guess we'll just transition very, very quickly into, uh, best performance. I know you had a surprise one. I will get the obvious one out of the way. Um, best performance for me is Steven Spielberg. I mean, this is this is quintessentially like one of those that you always put in that um, high top value of his. It's by far his most successful movie, um, box office wise. Uh, the only other one that could compete for it, and th- he basically topped himself after uh, George Lucas had topped him later on. Um, you know, he had the original big box office with Jaws, then. Uh, it was topped by Star Wars, then he tops it again with this movie, and then tops himself with Jurassic Park later on, and then through the re-releases, this is his most successful. But um, I, I really don't think there are too many more um, movies that really speak to the box office um, and general um, audience quality that Spielberg's been able to cultivate. He has two real types of films, the ones that are um, difficult, hard-hitting historical subjects, um, usually uh, containing Tom Hanks, um, save for Schindler's List, and um, then the popcorn flicks that are for everybody. Okay, I understand your point. So who is your surprise best performance? John Williams. Okay, so uh, since uh, you pulled that one out, uh, I put that as be- my best minor performance, but it could have been very easily. And I think I'll agree with you just off the top. His score um, makes the entire movie. And, and that's why I gave it to him. Because I started watching the movie originally for the content of the movie. And I'm going to be honest. I thought the movie dragged towards the first half. I mean, it was the setup and I'm getting bored and whatever. And so what I did was, is I decided, all right, well, I'm focusing on the action of the film, and there isn't much. 
I'm instead going to listen to the score and the, the various instruments playing and what's going on. And all of a sudden, the, my interest in the movie changed significantly. And it was primarily because of the methods that John uh, Williams used in order to reach the score. He used combinations of things from everything from, uh, from violins to French horns to um, percussion. I mean, it, it, it's a masterpiece. I mean, if this was not tied to a movie and it was released as a, as a uh, classical music piece, it might go down, in my opinion, as one of the great uh, modern classical music pieces written because it is so varied and so emotionally raw at times mm -hmm. that it just makes the film. I don't think this film is that great of a film but for John Williams' score. I mean, that's that's a bit bold on that part. I think there are some things, but this does significantly enhance um, because this becomes a very, it, it's not really a comedy. It's, there's not a ton of action to this. There's a lot of exposition. There's some other set pieces and some different things. Obviously the last few scenes where um, you have like the kids biking and uh, all of that stuff that's going on, that, that involves some level of action, but um, most of the film is kind of just these uh, background set pieces. Um, the real crux of the movie is its sentimentality. And you really don't get the same level of emotion without the music being um, as soaring yet innocent. And um, like, I, I, there, there are so many pieces wrapped up into all of this down from the first time that, cause like you really don't hear the the huge like soaring piece of um, the movie dun, 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 until about an hour in. And that's right when that bike scene happens and he's going or biking across the moon, that type of shot. And that's when you hear that first real eruption of the um, strings that gives you that kind of like same similar soaring feeling that really matches the tone of the movie. So I don't think that um, it would be the same without each other. I think there is somewhat of a um, great marriage in that, but I think each one enhances the other in that particular regard. Well, I know I've told you this outside of the podcast on multiple occasions, but my theory of success in life is not that you achieve anything, that it is several rays of light that cross at an intersection and create a point of greatness. So it's not just Steven Spielberg. It's not just the script writers. It's not just John Williams. It's the marriage of all of these together that reaches a certain pinnacle that cross over each other that results in a film that transcends the general and becomes something that's legendary. And that's what's going on here. I would love to have a director's cut where it is um, John 
Williams directing the orchestra with the film for being portrayed or, or shown in the background to watch the orchestra playing while the film is being shown, which is what I understand they generally do when filming or doing the recordings is so that the, the conductor and orchestra has a feel for the movie itself. Uh, I don't know if they have it for this movie, but there are several examples of that with the recent Star Wars films that you can find on YouTube um, where like JJ's sitting in and watching John Williams perform this and like uh, conduct as they're recording uh, like the opening theme and the rest of it, which is it's very neat to watch them try and do all of that um, to score the film that way. Um, I will say, and this is one of the things. So we start going through his lineage and we, as um, I guess an art appreciating culture, you and I, um, we lost Carl Reiner last week. Uh, I know we didn't mention it on last week's podcast. Uh, we will obviously know, but um, you know, you start thinking of, and you and I very much appreciate the in memoriam every year at the Oscars. And that's, that's probably one of the most um I shouldn't say favorite, but it's one of the most poignant moments of the Oscar presentation every year to me because it honors and respects the legacy that um, men and women have given to motion pictures. Well, I, you just, I think it's celebrating the legacy of that person and you, it's the finality of their loss. Um, and all of the things that they touched or had um, an effect on. I know that, you know, some of the people that are shown in these are producers or makeup people or people we have no idea for. Um, but the, the special relationship we have with actors or directors or writers sometimes, um, and in this particular instance, you think of the things that John Williams has directly played a role in um, how we've seen cinema for three plus decades. He did Jaws, he did Superman, he did um, Star Wars, he did Bra or uh, Indiana Jones, he did E.T., he's done Jurassic Park. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You literally, from just the scores of certain movies and their theme songs, could make a huge playlist that people would know for a long time but the the marriage between him and spielberg um or him and star wars is absolutely legendary and similarly you found other director um composer marriages that have worked similarly um christopher nolan and, and christopher nolan and han zimmer um it's notable that han zimmer this is going to be the first um uh chris nolan movie he hasn't scored um, this new Tenet movie that's supposed to be coming out whenever everything opens back up. Uh, he took a, an opportunity to do something that was like a lifelong goal of his, but um, for the well, first time that, uh, you know, since basically, I don't know if he even, he might've even scored Memento and that's going like way back, but you know, Alexander Desplat and um, oh, uh, the, uh, I'm drawing a blank. The guy who did Toy Story. Um, as far as director? No, no, no. He, the composer. And then he oh. did the song. 
and I can't think of his name right now. Randy Newman? Yes, Randy Newman. But all of those guys are senior age and at some point, because John Williams just retired from Star Wars, which is by its own self, like a momentous thing. John Williams took over the Boston Pops in the 70s after Arthur Fiedler retired. Um, but we can go back even earlier than that because the first great marriage between director and a musician was a director who started out doing television and um, did a show called Peter Gunn. And he hired ah, a yes. young uh, composer by the name of Henry Mancini. And Henry Mancini ended up doing uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is Moon River. He did the Pink Panther. He did um, uh, the Baby Elephant Walk from the or from mm -hmm. um, Tari. Um, I mean, so Henry Mancini before John Williams was one of the, the largest um, um, composers. Um, and I cannot remember his first name. Was it Dimitri Pentankin? I think what holds, I think, even more Academy Awards for music uh, and score than even John Williams. And if you look at the, if you look at the score for Pentankin, I mean, it's like he did the score for huge films, but at the time there wasn't the conversation about musicians as much. Um, I'd have to, and almost should, almost look up. You know, just the film or the filmography for uh, Pentankin. Um, towards the end of his career, when he was about to retire and I subsequently died, um, he became kind of a celebrity in and of himself. Um, I remember watching uh, at very, when I was a kid, I watched uh, on Saturday mornings while other kids were watching cartoons. I watched public TV, which had black and white TV shows from the 1950s. So I watched Burns and Allen. I watched George, or I mean, uh, Jack Benny. I watched Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I, you know, and watching Pentankin show up on Jack Benny and be celebrated as one of the greats in film at that point in time. But by then he had been, you know, he was an old man. Right. But, um, uh, so the score has been a significant part in movies for a long time. Oh, I trust me, I, I understand. Psycho wouldn't be the same without its score, or you know, Vertigo, or some of the Hitchcock films. I, to me, and this goes back to, uh, I I think we've covered it a couple of different times, and we usually do it with any of our guests who are on for the first time. Um, but you know, what it, or what makes a movie for you? And one of the things that's always going to be for me is like a um, score that moves me, it, some type of emotional resonance. You know, all of my favorite movies have a um, score to them that like really enhance the quality of the overall film. Mm -hmm. And um, that's just notable uh, as far as I'm concerned. So. Um, I, I think it's going to be a, a very tough day when we start losing all of these or this current class of like older composers that are usually up there. Um, and uh, I, I do hope we get another generation that can at least compete. 
Well, I know. I, I mean, I'm not even sure how old Hans Zimmer is, but I remember Hans Zimmer started by doing the theme song to Miami Vice in the early 80s. Right. Um, that being said, um, who was your best minor performer? Mine was John Williams, so we've kind of covered that. Um, but uh, what do you got? Spielberg. Okay, so you basically in, had it inverse to myself. Yes. All right, and I anything you'd like to add, at least on the Spielberg part of you, or you think we've kind of covered that? Um, there have been times where Spielberg is accused of being rather saccharine. Um, You're going to have to expand on that. Most people aren't going to know what that means. <laughs> means overly sweet. Okay, um, but I think that and, there's definitely room for that, whereas movies have kind of turned a little too gritty at times for me, but okay. You know, and so there's a certain element of that, but for the most part, it is a story about innocence, and that's what's portrayed. And when I am, you know, I, 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 I've been involved with, with groups of men, you know, for years and years and years who have gotten together for various reasons, Bible studies, um, just, you know, evenings out. And I've always been told once you get over about 55, you become extremely emotional and it's hard, not uh, difficult for you to start just crying about stuff. And I found that myself and I teared up in this film. Mm -hmm. I mean, I couldn't believe I was tearing up, but I was so tearing up when E.T. is dying and Elliot's screaming for him, you know, um, I mean, that's, the a ending, level, the... that's, a, that's a level of emotion that, that um, you know, it's so easy for a director to try to grab it out of your chest and pull it out. Uh, Spielberg has a knack for just sitting there and kind of with two fingers kind of going, come here, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I'm going to, okay, I got your emotion. Okay, you're crying now. Yeah, I got it. He has a sentimentality and in some ways a nostalgia that um is not at least for the way i watch his films doesn't feel forced there are some where they're like just trying to bring every piece out of you all at the same time um but none of these feels unnatural to me yeah um they they all hit the right mark without uh, going over the top somehow. Okay. And I, I, I do think that's part of his overall brilliance, but um, I'll just stick to that. So uh, most charismatic award. Uh, Peter Coyote. Interesting. All right. Explain yours. Well, he had a huge billing and, you know, he only was in about the last third of the movie which actually even even that uh he might have had 10 lines yeah but there was just something about him that portrayed the same innocence elliot had but as an adult 
Yeah, I I definitely can buy that. Um, it's uh, I I just I don't know. Maybe you had a different connection to it because that's your entrance point. Being a little bit older, I still, even though I just turned thirty a couple of days ago, um, can Child. still <laughs> um, attack it from the angle of the kid because I think to a certain extent. Um, it's from where you see yourself yet. And I still relate a bit to the kids. So that one wasn't as much for me. Um, and this is going to sound weird potentially, but for me, the most charismatic award is ET. Okay. Like he's a gentle, kind alien that you project your own feelings onto. Yeah. Because for the most parts of the film, the only times he speaks, like, those are usually bigger moments. Um, but most of it's, the rest of it, the time, you're just projecting stuff off of it. But yet, all of the things that surround him, all of the action, the kindness, the goodness, and the rest of it, if that character doesn't work, obviously the rest of the film just kind of disintegrates. I will point out one thing about it is you're easy to relate to E.T. because all of us have been in situations where we have been felt like we were abandoned by everyone who cared about us and we've been set adrift and we look for some sort of safe harbor and find it in the most unusual of circumstances. And that's what E.T. experienced. All right. So that takes us to best scene. Um, I have probably about eight different nominees. Uh, number one, Elliot finding E.T. Okay. Um, that's about halfway or a half hour into the movie. The first half hour to me is so... Um, I, I, I did agree with you that it kind of dragged because it was somewhat exposition and the reveal and they were building up to something but um you didn't know what and it really wasn't until about that half hour mark where um elliot and et finally like connect and that the movie kind of takes off because up until that point they're just giving you these kind of hints at where things are going to be going and um how it how it needs to go along so um number two et learns to speak um, simply put, this is where the connection between all three of the kids really starts, particularly as, uh, it, uh, applies to Gertie, Drew Barrymore's character, because like she feels compelled that she's the one that taught E.T. how to speak, even though it was really the speak and spell. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have a chance to mention this, but if I had to pick, pick a secondary, uh, charismatic would be Drew Barrymore. You could watch her in this film and know that she was going to be a star at some point in time. She just had a quality even as a child that was just mesmerizing. So uh, that takes us to um, kind of the next sequence of stuff in the movie. So E.T. heals Elliot. Uh, I have that one as another one. Um, just where he... Pre or. Um, pricks but um cuts himself on the saw blade 
ET heals him, you know, establishing kind of the magical qualities, but also reinforcing the whole um, notion of the flowers. And then um, we get um, them pursuing, um, so ET phone home, um, them um, going off into the forest. We get the iconic sequence, um, which is my nominee for most indelible moment. Um, E.T. and Elliot flying on the bicycle across uh, the moon um, and that whole piece. Um, and then we get to the intervention by the government. Um, E.T. dies. Then he rises from the dead. The kids bike to the forest. Uh, and then the final goodbye. Uh, all four of those being different scenes or um, pieces. But um, for the purposes of this, I'll just nominate... Um, I, I do. First off, do you have anything that you think I missed on that list? No, I don't think so. Okay, so for best scene, I'm just going to nominate that whole like three part final sequence, basically the last half hour of the movie. Um, E.T. rises from the dead. There's that elation of um, them um, realizing he's still there, and then trying to figure out how to uh, help him escape. Um, leads to them meeting up with uh, the older brother, Mike's uh, friends, who then try and uh, save him by taking off on their bikes and trying to get to the forest. And then the final very sentimental uh, goodbye um, where, you know, I, I'll be right here uh, pointing to Elliot's mind and yes. <laughs> uh, that whole piece. So uh, what was your best scene? I agree with you on your comment. By the way, I would note that uh, one of the Elliot's or Elliot's brother's friends was played by C. Thomas Howell, okay. who went on to have a pretty decent career in the 80s and 90s. Um, I don't remember anything beyond that. I want to say the last film I remember him in was Wolverines with... Red Dawn, you mean? Red Dawn, yes. Yeah, that's the only thing of note that I... I can place the name from but i don't know the face because i've never watched the original red dawn uh i've watched the crappy remake but <laughs> anyway so uh for favorite scene i'll just quickly et phone home and et hills elliot i'll give that a joint uh billing um i already gave you my most indelible moment as et and elliot flying on the bicycle across the moon but uh did you have another one you wanted to nominate for that no, I, I mean, that is such an iconic um, moment. And I think in large part, it kind of uh, is one of the, the culminating moments of uh, Steven Spielberg's career. I, I think because it's so closely intertwined, it was part of the movie poster. Um, it's been part of the branding um, and the rest of it. I would tend to agree that, um, it ultimately is part of the story that will be told eventually on, you know, his um, eulogy or his, um, um, why am I drawing a blank on the um, obituary? Yes, thank you. I don't know why I had such a brain fart on that one. So Because it's far away for you yet? When you get closer to my age, your eulogy starts becoming more and more prevalent. You mean you start practicing it? Well, you start thinking <laughs> about what you want in it. Fair enough. All right. That's probably a good time to cut to a quick break for our commercial sponsor. And welcome back. 
All right, so before we get uh, into best lines, I would just like to highlight a couple of other show notes that I forgot here at the top of the podcast uh, to try and hit. So one would be um, a uh, great community that you and I are both a part of and that I'm a founding member of called Podcast Town, um, a uh, great community for any um, fellow podcasters, anybody looking to potentially start one. Um, just, uh, uh, reach out. I think you can find it on podcasttown.net, uh, and, uh, go to that. Uh, you can find them on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter and Facebook at the moment as well. But, um, another community member of ours that I'd just like to give a quick shout out to, you'll probably hear a few of them as, uh, we kind of go along, but, uh, a, uh, friend of mine, another fellow founding co-member, um, of, uh, podcast town, um, and that would be Rob Conlon, uh, who uh, I believe might be doing a guest spot here soon on the episode. Uh, he produces a podcast called Recruiting Hell. So um, that is specifically geared um, towards uh, people that um, need help um, putting together their resumes or are going through job searches right now. And due to the pandemic and everything else and uh, the unemployment rate being um, twice what it was even a few months ago, um, anybody that uh, can use a little extra brushing up on uh, good tactics to uh, help with your job search, I would direct you there. So um, just a couple of uh, key pieces to note before we get back into things. Considering that um, I'm in the process of hiring multiple professionals, if he's going to do any kind of a podcast about pro- or you know what professional organizations you know are looking for, Give him my name. I'd be glad to step well, in. Well, you, you're on that. the community. He's they, okay. He and I are the number one and number two by far um, community outreach people on Podcast Town right now. So, um, But uh, we'll probably be talking to him upcoming. Um, he um, is excited to potentially uh, guest on one of our episodes or a couple of them here back to back. And uh, I will say um, I have not seen his face yet because he doesn't have a webcam on some of our community <laughs> meetings, but he has one of the best like podcast voices, like radio voices that you can uh, think of. Just got that like deep baritone. Rob and Edwards. I don't know who that is, but Rob Edwards was on NPR for decades and they fired him because he was too old. He, I think sued for age discrimination. He was hired by Sirius XM and he does a ton of stuff for Sirius XM now. Well, that could be the case, but either way, um, yeah, that, that'd be a good one. Uh, I honestly, having listened to it myself, because I've been um, trying to catch up with some of the other uh, founding members podcasts as we've been going along, um, I think it would be a good tool for potential employers to um, kind of see what it's like on the other side of it sometimes and uh, get maybe some ideas on um, better practices for themselves. So, all right. That being said, uh, let's move right into best lines. So, uh, this movie has one particular indelible line, which we kind of mentioned at the top, um, which was voted as, um, like one of the, the top movie quotes of all time. So I think this is going to be a very weighted discussion where we almost feel obligated to pick that because it's the one that's the most iconic. Um, but We'll just run through a couple of other ones that I, I wanted to pay special attention to. So, um, random scientist, you said it has the ability to manipulate its own environment. 
Michael, he's smart. He communicates through Elliot. Elliot thinks it's thoughts. No, Elliot, Elliot feels his feelings. Uh, just a, another example and why I kind of picked to highlight that particular one is um, the connection or the bond that Elliot and E.T. really have that um, nobody else really has with him in that particular sense. Um, well, you can even go further with this Masonic thing, which is that is the definition of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to yeah. do that, because yeah. you feel what it is that Christ is teaching you. Certainly, I think there there is something to be said on, along those lines. So, um, keys. Elliot, I've been to the forest. Elliot, that machine, what does it do? Elliot, the communicator, the communicator, is it still working? It's doing something. What? I really shouldn't tell. He came to me. He came to me. Elliot, he came to me too. I've been wishing to for this since I was 10 years old. I don't want him to die. What can we do that we're not already doing? He needs to go home. He's calling his people and I don't know where they are. He needs to go home. Elliot, I don't think that he was left here intentionally, but his being here is a miracle, Elliot. It's a miracle. And you did the best that anybody could do. I'm glad he met you first. Again, it's some of the sentimentality that's... Yes. Uh, all part of that, and I think that it, I've gravitated a lot towards um, on or like summation lines. This is another one of those that I think um, is a good kind of summation conversation. Yes. So, uh, but then the uh, iconic one, and then I have a few nominees separate for um, the funniest line if you will in a movie that i didn't think was like all that funny it had its moments here or there but um some of it was a, a little more physical humor than yes. like quippiness or anything so um et phone home et home phone gertie et phone home elliot et phone home et phone home he wants to call somebody. What's all this shit? E.T. Phone. Home. My God, he's talking now. Home. E.T. Phone. Home. E.T. Phone. Home. And they'll come? Come. Home. Home. Well. Because I think it really kicks off the last the last part of the movie and um, kind of the derived action of everything that's going to go from that, that he was mistakenly left here, that he needs to go home in order to be saved, um, that ultimately he has some connection in that way. But um, the the last part of the movie is all toward finding him a way home. And as you mentioned, I think we can all somewhat put ourselves in that shoe or in those shoes, even if we uh, can't put ourselves in that kind of body. Yes. So, all right. Um, I just had three quick ones for funniest line. Um, Elliot, he's a man from outer space and we're taking him to his spaceship. Greg, well, can he just beam up? This is reality, Greg. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that that's just basically poking fun at Star Trek in a movie where you're suspending the abnormal anyway, but 
Um, oh God, <laughs> Elliot, what? Elliot, Elliot. I taught him how to talk. He can talk now. Wait, can you say E.T.? E.T.? E.T. Ha-ha! E.T. 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 Be good. Be good. I taught him that, too. I don't know if that's funny so much as, like, again, that's that's the moment where Gertie really connects with him, more or less. Um, And then the final one, which... It has to have an assist for like the physical humor. So if you haven't seen the movie, it, it doesn't work as well for you. But uh, Gertie, here he is. Uh, Mary Bops E.T. with a refrigerator door. Here's who? The man from the moon. But I think you killed him already. Yes. I do love that scene. That the mother is completely oblivious. <laughs> well, given the example that we usually have to go to. I'll let you have that one. <laughs> wow. Well, she doesn't uh, listen to the podcast anyway. So it doesn't well, That's matter. true. She claims she doesn't need to because she comes home and usually catches the last part of our recording. All right. So we'll go to the rubric grading. Um, so in my initial grade, I had Legacy higher. Uh, and I've just slightly knocked it down. Um, because there is a circulating animus um, that the the story for this movie is a bit plagiarized from an Indian writer, um, and even uh, a friend of Spielberg's, fellow um, celebrity director Martin Scorsese, even credits that some of this is ripped off. Spielberg has vehemently denied this, um and gone on many times about how um he didn't take anything from this other guy but um there are some direct plot lines from that particular thing i also think that the further we've removed ourselves like had this been about 15 or 20 years ago um this movie would be like um still celebrate i think it's lost a little bit or tapered off as we've gotten a little bit further away from it i think it does have a certain legacy but i don't know if it works as well as it did um with the audience there's a certain element of this film that when you watch it again it's saccharine it's overly sweet and to that extent I think that modern culture has been a little more cynical. <laughs> well, look at the times that we're currently going through and the environment and art usually reflects its environment. And I think we've gotten a lot of uh, anti-heroes, um, much more layered and flawed characters than we used to. And uh, we treat the movies less as an escapism than we used to. So well, I mean, we could make this more, po- or it would be more poignant if, for example, in addition to ET going home, they banish um, certain Confederate general statues. I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole on the podcast, and you know it. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have a problem with it, so I know. All right, so I gave it a nine. I knocked it down. I originally put this as a solid 10. 
I, I because would go, I would go nine point five because it is. I mean, all, all right, I, I'll say, even come up to it. I all you have to do is say E T, and the film is how old? Twenty thirty eight years old. Thirty eight, thirty eight years old, and you say E T. Everybody yet today knows exactly what film you're talking about. Yeah, I mean it, it's still widely known. There's still elements of it that are part of the pop culture lexicon. Um, I, I think it's had a tale. I just don't know. They did a Super Bowl commercial about it this last year. Yeah, I suppose. I. Well, all right. I, I for a couple of small come downs, um, we'll go to nine point five collectively. Then well, let's but. let's put it this way. There's nothing original in humanity anymore. Between Shakespeare and Chaucer and all the other writers, it's really difficult to come up with anything that's not at least somewhat plagiarized anymore. Yes and no, but uh, that that's that's a much larger discussion than you and I can take on for like best original ideas or something. One of these like specialty podcasts you and I want to do as a potential series. I've got other ones on. I want to do before I try and tackle that one, that uh, greased hog. Fair enough. Uh, impact significance. I had it as a nine point five. I think I could even go higher. Um, I'll go nine point five simply because. I, I keep the perfect score for something that absolutely has. Like, honestly, and this is one where the impact at the time, you do the convergence of critics, um, audience response, and then like the trifecta of like winning the award season. The one that I would reserve, even though I don't care for the film all that much, because I find it to be too sappy. Um, which is weird for me because I usually like all of those, but for whatever reason, this convergence doesn't work for me. But Titanic. <laughs> okay. It won Best Picture. It was critically acclaimed. And, like, everybody and their mother saw that movie, and it was part of, like, a big explosion at the time. You don't get a lot of... there. There isn't a lot that's going to come out right now that is going to be like the biggest movie of all time um, box office wise that everybody's going to see. And it's going to win all the, the awards and critic response. Yeah, I suppose, but so, but I will moments. say I, again, the fact that this was re-released twice, it had re-releases on VHS um, that does add to the legacy, but the impact on it alone um, the, the quote that you got from Richard Attenborough for who won best director and, um, best picture that year, um, in 82 for Gandhi, I know you have your own issues with that for that particular year, but he thought for sure he was going to lose to ET. So I, I think that in the moment, um, the fact that this set a record for the most weeks, I mean, this, this movie was out from June to Christmas. Because yeah. it kept oscillating between number one and number two at the box office for months. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, the impact it had, the amount of people that saw it, the, the just box office acclaim that this movie had. And I still think there are a lot of people that grew up on this movie. Um, 
I, I think Wait. at for what it was at the time, it has to be an, at minimum a 9.5. Which is why I'm giving it a 9.5, because 1981 is when I really started getting into the Best Picture nominees. And in 82, I saw all the Best Picture nominees except E.T. I just had no interest in it when I was in... This would have been my senior, senior year of high school. school. I just had no interest in it. I went and saw Gandhi. I saw Tootsie. I mean, to be honest, I still argue to this point that Tootsie was the best film that year. To be fair, it's... it Or that best picture race has four films we're eventually going to cover on this podcast. Tootsie, uh, this... Or E.T. here... Um, and frankly, it probably has more because that's also the year of Sophie's Choice. Yes. Um, but that wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Oh. Um, Gandhi mm-hmm. and The Verdict. Yes, which I thought The Verdict was extremely well done, and in fact, one of uh, one of Paul Newman's better performances. So, um, all right. Uh, what did you have down for novelty? Um. I had down a 8.5. Okay, so I had a 9, and simply there are certain elements to this movie. I could probably be knocked down. Um, This is the second second big um, sci-fi alien first encounter type of film that Spielberg did. The first one, though, was a very adult version, and this is much more the kids' version. And there's the certain sentimentality that's in this one that I didn't think was apparent in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, There are other pieces of this that I thought were unique, but I can't put this by itself... um, uh, it completely ha- that high up. It has to do with the package because by this time we'd had Star Trek from the sixties. We had had all of those, uh, you know, schlock films. Well, from by the various, time ET came out, know, we had two Star Wars films. Yeah, it, it's just not that novel. the The novel is the package of it, which is to make a sci fi fantasy into a story of innocence and love. That's where the novelty lies. It's not in the subject matter. It's in how it was presented. Sure. I'll I'll even go for the the perspective um, point of view and the audience it was trying to reach. Now, I understand that, like, Star Wars was still somewhat uh, for kids or a more general audience, but the sentimentality and the rest of it um, was um, specifically geared towards a younger audience. Yeah. Or families, for for that matter, I suppose. Uh, Classicness? um, Other than there are a couple of, like, um, weird callbacks, like the speak and spell. Um, I, I didn't really find any problems with this movie. Like, this seems pretty on the nose for what you would think of, like, any alien encounter. Um, some of the special effects and the rest of it haven't aged, you know, great. Like, you could tell they were still a little primitive, but you and I 
uh, made comment on that when we talked about the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark episode that we let off the uh, show with. So, yes, um, that's where I'm going with this, which is I have to give it a seven because this is a film that at the time may have been with special effects cutting edge. But when you're dealing with this level of special effects over time, this was not a film to be done in high def. Okay. No. Uh, the fact is, is E.T. looked rubber. Okay. <laughs> you can tell it was rubber. And when they showed the spaceship, it was like, <laughs> oh, my God, here's a big plastic function with a bunch of plastic lights blinking and you know it's well, like but even, come on you in a concept of like the spaceship it doesn't even like look as creative or you know whatever else it basically just looks like a uh, weird christmas tree ornament yes or or a uh or a uh uh some sort of like um uh what's the term I'm looking for? Um, something that you would sit in the backyard and sit into um, a, um, it would sit in your backyard. You'd sit on it with the fenced in. Uh, oh, a merry-go-round? No, it's not a merry-go-round, but I, you know, uh, um, I'm drawing an absolute blank. I don't know. But it, it, you know, it, it looks like something that you would have in your backyard, and like you'd invite the neighbors over, and you'd sit in the screened-in porch. It it didn't look like a spaceship. I mean, what was? <laughs> I mean, the thing, the, the little the little uh, arrow thing on the top. It looked like like it should be on uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang instead of uh, a sci-fi film. All right, so. Um... That will take us to... Oh, no, I guess we never really scored it out. Um, so you said you had a 7 for that? Yep. I had an 8.5. Uh, I guess we'll average it out in between to a 7, 7, 5. Um, rewatchability? Mm. So it depends. I... Am I turning in and catching it in the middle and watching the last <laughs> half, or am I watching the first half? So, um, I put it as a seven. Uh, I really don't have any problems with this. This is again, one that I would probably show to other people and enjoy watching again, but I don't think it's one I'm actively seeking out because I didn't grow up with it. I think there are people that would have a sentimentality toward it. And so like, I'm not going to knock it down terribly for that either, but it's certainly not a it wasn't a problematic rewatch other than maybe that first half an hour where it's still kind of breaking into the film for me. Yeah. I, I, I had between a six and a half and a seven and a half. I'll go with your seven for that reason, because here it is in between. And, and again, that's the whole thing. It's a difference between, you know, the first half versus the second half. And it is something that, you know, I kind of look back at it and go, why did I avoid watching this film for the longest time? <laughs> well, there know. are there are plenty of films that are like that for you. So that gives it a final score of 49.7. And uh, that will put it just above Raiders of the Lost Ark for number nine on the li current list. Wow. Um, 
I did forget to mention that um, uh, part of the reason it got knocked down, it probably would have been a little bit higher, but this only has a 72 audience score. <laughs> really? Yep. As um, popular as it was. I don't know. And maybe that's it's... a recency thing that maybe it's exactly your comment of the saccharin. Yeah. But um, I, for I whatever that's reason. that's got to be what it is. Because it is. You know, and, and moreover, when you think about it, I mean, can you find any more of a lily white cast? Can you think of one minority in the entire film? I, I, well, to be fair, like, didn't we go through this last week for Silence of the Lambs? Like, you know, unless you're going to throw in Morgan Freeman as the next door neighbor. <laughs> I mean, the alien in here is an alien. <laughs> okay. So... But, uh, all right, so I don't have any other remaining questions. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to uh, briefly discuss yet? I know this is uh, in the the uh, upper end of the Spielberg uh, filmography. It's arguably in his top five. It's minimum in his top ten. I know, and, and in retrospect, I love Spielberg. I think Spielberg's great. But uh, I can name, you know, I really love Jaws. I really love Saving Private Ryan. We won't even talk well, about Schindler's because that's a, that is a film that is beyond what you can even describe. So I think one of these episodes um, are the ones we could do with specific directors. So Hitchcock, his top five, um, Spielberg, and some of these because – uh, th this is just it. You start running down the list. I think it would be extremely difficult. It's like picking the top five Beatles songs um, that uh, Catch Me If You Can, um, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List. Um, I know I'm forgetting a, probably a ton of these, but uh, E.T., Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, the or the other two Indiana Jones films we won't Bridge mention. Bridge of Spies. Um, yeah, Bridge of Spies more recently, but like um, he's coming out with West Side Story later this year. He's just got such a filmography that it, it's hard to compete with. I, I dare say, um, even though his run in, in the last maybe 15 years hasn't been as impressive, it's still that he's... Okay, but you, you look at compared to his... Like 70s, 80s, and 90s. How old is he? I understand. I'm simply saying he hasn't maintained. No one does. But You're right, because you get tired. And when you reach the level of success well, and fame and money that he has, your drive diminishes. You look instead yes, at what, what he does now, and you realize that, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're gonna have you're gonna have a certain production. You're gonna have he produces a dozen eggs, and one out of every dozen, maybe every two dozen, is an is a golden egg. And when that happens, you savor it because you just can't keep up that level of production 
and concentration and focus that it does in order to achieve what he has done. All right, so that that will be one to potentially revisit at another point. I think we could have a, an interesting discussion on the, the inclusion of what would be his top five, per se, because I think there, there are several that we probably missed um that uh would deserve potential inclusion so all right but uh all right uh i wish we could chat longer but i'm expecting a friend for dinner uh please rate subscribe and review the podcast um you know, four or five stars, uh, hopefully, uh, if you enjoyed what we're doing. And um, uh, make sure you hit the follow in your Spotify, Apple, or uh, whatever feed to get more episodes each week. We've been producing these. Uh, this is our 22nd episode. We have our special 25th episode, which I think um, might go a little long due to the sentimentality on that particular film for both of us. But uh, join us next week for Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Thank you. Uh, for which is uh, currently on stars uh, if you have that programming. Uh, otherwise, uh, have a great week, everybody.